Right, good morning again. It's a little before 10 o'clock in the morning right now for those of us who are live and in the Pacific Daylight time zone. At this moment in your life, uh, you could be doing a lot of different things I'm aware of. You could be catching up with desperately needed sleep. You could be reading the news or watching the news. You could be exercising. You could be training. You could be doing some sport that you love. You could be shopping online, shopping at home, out getting something that you need, ordering something that you'd like. You could be playing a video game. You could be home doing chores, cleaning the bathroom, doing the laundry. You could be balancing your checkbook. You could be volunteering at Samaritan House. There are a lot of things that you could be doing right now that each of us could be, but we're here. And while we're here and on campus and together, we could be also doing a lot of things. We could be eating, we could be drinking, we could be laughing, we could be connecting, we could be getting to know one another better, we could be serving, we could be building, we could be encouraging, we could be strategizing. We've already prayed, we've already sung. There are a lot of things that we could be doing. But now we're gonna open the scriptures together, which is what we always do. And we do that knowing that the 66 books in the Bible that we know as the Old and New Testaments are for us, and not just for us, we believe, but for all people, the inspired word of God, sufficient and authoritative in all things for all of us and all people, the source of truth and reality and goodness for all people. We believe that the 66 books of the Old and New Testament are together the inspired word of God and are in every way sufficient for all matters of life and faith and godliness and obedience and abundance. And so we approach the scriptures together. Let's pray together. Let me ask you to stand with me this morning as we pray. Here we are, God. In your presence, and your presence we know isn't limited to this building, but it's a place that we get together that honors you and helps direct our attention and our focus to you and to your goodness and your power and your presence and your grace. As we open your word, and not just a book, but as we open your word together, open us to it. Have your way with us, fill us with your spirit and refill us. Help us to be attentive to the things you would have us know and become. I pray that as my words are true to your word, that they be taken to heart. If my words stray or deviate in any way from your word, may they be immediately and forever forgotten. We pray with confidence and joy and hope in Jesus' name. Amen. So reading from the Gospel of Matthew Beginning at chapter five, verse 31, listen closely. This is the word of God from the Son of God. Jesus speaks. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Period. And now let's close in prayer. Head home. Sort of kidding. Uh, that would be easier for many of us, some of us, maybe a lot of us. It might be easier for me. It would be easier for me. 
I appreciate Jomo sitting in for me uh, last week, last Sunday morning. Karen and I got away for a couple of days, got back on Saturday evening, Saturday night, so it was a real uh, gift for him to be able to uh, sit in for me in that way. He happened to draw in our journey through the Sermon on the Mount, the passage on lust and adultery, which is in itself challenging and tricky and awkward in some ways, complicated, though he did a great job with that. This morning we come to divorce what Jesus had to say about divorce, or at least the first thing Jesus had to say about divorce. Later on in Matthew's Gospel in chapter 19, Jesus goes into greater detail, and there are a couple of other places in Matthew's not-too-long Gospel that Jesus actually talks about divorce and marriage and remarriage. Divorce comes up periodically for him and maybe more regularly than we would expect. And we might be surprised that the subject of divorce makes it into Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and so quickly, so early, found in chapters 5, 6, and 7, if you've been with us, you know, in Matthew's Gospel. Considering all of the things that Jesus could have talked about that are really important to religious kinds of people like us. But as it turned out, marriage was really important to Jesus. You remember that Jesus wasn't married himself, never did. I think that's worth acknowledging, but Jesus seems to have treated marriage, I'm gonna go out on a little bit of a limb here, as the most important of human relationships. Of course, not everyone ever gets married, not everyone has or raises children, but among those who do and those who don't, we each have different relationships at different seasons in our lives. Parents, we've all had at some point, but don't have right now, some of us. Parents, children, spouses, neighbors, siblings, cousins, grandchildren, and so on. And what sorts of relationships one has at different times in one's life doesn't make anyone better or more successful or more righteous or better off than anyone else. That seems pretty clear in the scriptures. But among the relationships that a person can have at different stages of one's life, Jesus seems to treat marriage with particular and unique importance. Thus, verses 31 and 32 of chapter 5 in Matthew's Gospel. And even though Jesus had just spoken in the immediately previous verses of chapter 5 about lust and adultery, in other words, a violation of the covenant of marriage, and we might say the protection of marriage or the saving of marriage from lust and its dangers, even though Jesus had just in the preceding verses taught on protecting the sanctity of marriage through the elimination of lust, Jesus now takes up marriage again, right away. Kind of third, third part of his Sermon on the Mount, right here. I'm going to rewind again, uh, recap, refresh for those of you who uh, appreciate that or need that or maybe you haven't been here with us over the last five weeks when we've been delving into, diving into Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Matthew begins his gospel with Jesus' genealogy and then gets to Jesus' birth. And then Jesus, uh, Matthew tells us about the wise men, the magi, coming from the east to visit and then about Mary and Joseph, Jesus' parents, whisking him away into Egypt for a season when he was a toddler, maybe an infant, to protect Jesus, this special child of theirs, from the murdering King Herod. And then they come back and land in Nazareth. 
And then there's a season when 30 years later, fast forward, John the Baptist begins preparing the way as prophesied in the Old Testament for Jesus. He eventually baptizes Jesus. After that, Jesus goes from his baptism into the wilderness, led by the Holy Spirit, where he would be tempted by the devil for a period of 40 or so days, which was actually a strengthening and a resolving time for him. He remained victorious over every temptation that Satan threw at him. And out of that came prepared and ready for public ministry, which he began. And he began by teaching and declaring and announcing several things. One, repent. Change your mind. Think differently. Think again. Renew your thinking. Reconsider. Think differently. Change your thinking. Change your life. Change who you are. Because the kingdom of the heavens or the kingdom of God is near. In him, it had come near and was closer than it had ever been in history. was available. And to show that he had the authority to say such things, Jesus healed all sorts of sick people, everyone he came in contact with, and cast out demons out of people who had been possessed by demons. And then Matthew recorded for his readers what has become known as Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, the best known and best loved and maybe the most ignored or misunderstood or disobeyed sermon in human history. Blessed are the poor in spirit and those who mourn and the meek and those who hunger and thirst for righteousness or justice or a sort of goodness that they maybe have never possessed before. Blessed are the merciful, the pure in heart and the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted and insulted. They, you, are blessed by God, Jesus says, not because of anything they had done, you'd done, we've done, but simply because of the goodness and the grace and the overflowing benevolence of God manifest in human flesh in Jesus. And then Jesus had the audacity to say this little band of people he'd called to follow him who were on board. He had the audacity to call them the salt of the earth and the light of the world through whom the world would be blessed, through whom the world would be saved, preserved salt, through whom the world would see or their eyes and their lives would be illuminated. And even though it seemed like Jesus was saying a lot of new things that were different than the things that people, the religious leaders had always taught and were teaching, Jesus said that he didn't come to abolish or cancel in our modern language the people's scriptures and their sources of authority and all of the richness of the word of God. But he came to fulfill it in a variety of ways. And Jesus promised that he would introduce those who would listen to him a a new sort of life and a new sort of goodness or righteousness that surpassed in every way the supposed righteousness of the Pharisees who were considered the most righteous people of the day, who loved the Bible and did religion really well. And Jesus offered and Jesus promised that he was gonna show them a different way that was even better, bigger, more grand and glorious. And then Jesus began to teach, tell, show, explain about this goodness, about this other kind of goodness that was characteristic of God's kingdom that showed up where God's kingdom showed up and life in it. Not just not murdering people as the sixth of the Ten Commandments forbade, but also not calling people derogatory names and not just not calling people hurtful, demeaning names that place them below us or us above them, but also not even thinking things about other people that were demeaning and getting a handle on our anger. 
Not letting in anger get its foothold in one's heart so that as Jesus would explain later, we could truly love people. As his father loves people. And then in the next section, it's not enough to just refrain from committing adultery. In other words, having sexual relationships with someone who is not one's spouse. Jesus calls people to not even think in that direction, to never look at another person who is not one's spouse in a way that seeks to possess them or have them or control them for one's own pleasure. But instead to see people as beings made in the image of God who exist for God's glory and God's pleasure and whom we are called to love and to seek what is best for them rather than what we can get from them, out of them, for us and our pleasure. Jesus' opening line in these first two antitheses and the next four that follow is, you have heard that it was said. You have heard that it was said, but I say to you. You have heard that it was said, but I say, referring to their scriptures and now his own authority. You've heard that it was said, and I say, and in each case, Jesus quotes their scriptures, which for them, as it turns out, they had this knack for tweaking and bending and adjusting and contorting to fit their own needs, wants, worldviews, purposes. They added to it, they subtracted to it, its content for their own benefit. And Jesus, Jesus doesn't do any reinterpreting. But in each case, he takes their scriptures and their truth deeper and to a deeper and deeper level into the matters of the heart, into ways that are exemplified in his kingdom. Verse 31. It's been said, and now Jesus quotes Moses in the book of Deuteronomy. And other times he quotes Jesus, he quotes the Ten Commandments found in Exodus and Deuteronomy. Here he quotes Deuteronomy. It has been said, and now he quotes from the, really, it's, Deuteronomy is very much the heart and soul of their scripture. It's been said anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of a divorce. And Jesus, and in Jesus' day, that was what men, men, say that with me, men. That's what men did when they divorced their wives. And it was only men who divorced their wives, only men who could initiate divorce in that day. Women didn't have the right to divorce their husbands. Women in that day were treated like property, like household servants, like a good to be bought and sold as their own, at their owner's discretion or, or whim. They didn't have any rights. They didn't have the sort of rights that we have possessed today. But the law, what we call the Old Testament, and specifically the law of Moses, the first five books of the Bible, required that anyone, any man, who divorced his wife had to give her a certificate of a divorce, which would allow her to show that she had at least been illegally, legally divorced, and so she could be taken in marriage by another man. It was a provision for her benefit, which would bring her under someone else's roof, which would help protect her and provide for her at a sort of bare minimum. Her other options weren't very good, to live off of a family member begrudgingly or to live as a prostitute about the extent of a woman's options. And so in Jesus' day, men wrote certificates of divorce when they chose to divorce their wives. That had become standard practice. Women could be passed around from man to man according to each man's pleasure with a certificate of divorce. But 
the law that directed men to write certificates of divorce for their wives, for their ex-wives, didn't exactly say what men of the day actually practiced. What had been said, in other words, the words of scripture to which Jesus referred in the book of Deuteronomy chapter four begin like this. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house. And if after she leaves his house, she becomes the wife of another man, and her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce, very common, gives it to her and sends her from, her, from his house, or if he dies, then her first husband, who divorced her, is not allowed to marry her again after she's been defiled. That would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. Do not bring sin upon the land of the Lord that your Lord your God is giving to you as an inheritance. And what's clear here is that Moses, God, the scriptures, never command divorce, but instead permit it, which Jesus says elsewhere later in chapter 19 in Matthew's gospel is due solely to the hardness of men's hearts, maybe human hearts, but in this case, men's hearts. Giving a wife a certificate of divorce is just a provision for her well-being when divorce happens due to the hardness of our hearts. And what is expressly forbidden in this passage from Deuteronomy is the thinking that women can simply be passed around with a divorce certificate or not. What is expressly forbidden in this passage is the thinking that women can simply be passed around. Divorce isn't commanded in Deuteronomy. Jesus points out it is only acknowledged and regulated. And so as with Jesus' teaching on anger and lust, Jesus again confronts the status quo and the righteousness of the Pharisees and their outward religiosity. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, which we'll talk about in just a moment, makes her the victim of adultery. Adultery is not such a big deal in our world anymore. It was a big deal then. It made it into the top 10, as you know, from way back early on. People in our day sleep around regularly. They're all manner and matter of divorce, of (laughs) adultery. The one who divorces his wife, the man who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her the victim of adultery which as you remember was explicitly forbidden by the seventh of the 10 commandments. And so was a grievous and grave sin to them. And so when Jesus says that the man's actions, in other words, divorcing his wife, created an adulterous situation of which his now former wife was the victim rather than the perpetrator, it is now the man who stands condemned. In Jesus' view, do you see that? Jesus has turned the tables and disrupted the social thinking of the day. And he continues, and anyone, and Jesus is speaking to men, anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And with that, Jesus closes the door 
for a lot of men to ever marry again. No longer is it okay to just pass women around. Anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Jesus closes the door for many men ever marrying again, lest they, not the woman they marry, become guilty of the grievous offense of adultery, grievous and offensive to God. The one exception or loophole that Jesus in Matthew's gospel offers is the phrase except for sexual immorality. The Greek word check translated sexual immorality translated into two words because it's hard to translate adequately into English with just one word is porneia or porneas, from which we obviously get the English word pornography. But what that word meant in Greek and means in Greek is far more than just dirty pictures or XXX films but rather any sexual activity outside the bonds of marriage between one man and one woman, period. Going back to Deuteronomy 24, the law said, if a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her and he writes her a certificate of a divorce, gives it to her and sends her from the house, and there has for thousands of years been debate about what that word translated here as indecent meant. There were two schools of thought back in the first century, two schools of theology and philosophy about the meaning of the word. The school of the more traditional and conservative Rabbi Shammai taught that the word translated here into English referred only to sexual immorality, to sexual matters, to infidelity, to adultery. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds some evidence of sexual impropriety about her and so writes a certificate of divorce, the more open-minded school of thought overseen or led by a rabbi named Hillel held a much broader understanding of the Hebrew word translated here as indecent so that a man could use this exception clause to divorce his wife if she was too loud, if the neighbors next door could hear her speaking when she was in her house. If she burned a man's breakfast, if she talked to another man on the street, if he simply didn't find her visually pleasing to him anymore. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds some, something indecent about her could have meant for the school of Hillel thinkers a whole lot of things. And which of these two schools of thought did Jesus affirm? Yes, the former, the first. Which of these two schools of thought do you think a lot of men of the time affirmed? Yes, the second, the latter. The broader, the one that gave them greater liberty to get out of their marriage, to issue certificates of divorce, to pick the woman and use the woman that they want for a time, however long that may be. But Jesus goes back even further in chapter 19 of Matthew's Gospel. He goes back further than their book of Deuteronomy, back into the core and the heart of God's creation in Genesis. From chapter 19, some Pharisees came to Jesus to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for, every, for any and every reason? And again, they're trying to get Jesus to trap him, come down on one side or the other to agree with them or to agree with them, but that it means it mean, ends up meaning disagreeing with someone or disagreeing with someone else. And in the background is John, John the Baptist's condemnation of the Herod and his sleeping around. 
Some Pharisees came to him to test Jesus. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, Jesus replied. And of course they read. They were Pharisees. They knew the scriptures. That at the beginning, the creator made them male and female. Jesus quoting the first chapter of Genesis. And Jesus said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And the two will become one flesh. And the Hebrew is so rich there that it means more than just sexual intercourse, but it means the coming together, the weaving together, the knitting together of two bodies and two souls and two spirits. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Those whom God has joined together and made one flesh, let no one separate, period. And this was largely the practice of the church and Christian communities over the first 1,500 years of the church. And then things began to change. Today, these words are hard for many to hear. Divorce is almost ubiquitous, both outside and inside the church. There are different stats about the number of marriages in our culture, our world, our society that end in divorce. 40, 50, 60%. And that doesn't even count now the decreasing number of divorces in our country because simply people aren't getting married anymore. People just aren't getting married. They're cohabitating, they're living together, they're living outside of the covenant, outside of God's prescribed way for a man and a woman to be joined and united. No one gets married with the idea that one day they may get divorced. No one gets married with the idea that one day they may get divorced. And yet that's so how often how things end up. I've been asked a lot of times over the years to uh, officiate at people's weddings. Woman, man, engaged. Will you uh, do officiate my wedding? Sure, uh, but with a couple of understandings, the first of which is that I'm more interested in your marriage than I am in your wedding. The focus in those months before is all about the wedding and a ton of resources, time, energy, planning and planning and planning go into many, many weddings. A huge, huge investment. I'm going to go along with you in this and I'm going to do my part and I'm going to commit and I'm going to be there with you and make this the most wonderful event, day, ceremony, celebration that it could possibly be in your life. I'm all in, but also with the understanding that I care more about your marriage than I do your wedding. A wedding's one day, a marriage is a lifetime, a wedding is an event, a marriage is a deep and abiding relationship. And it is not frequently an easy one. And anyone who tells you that marriage is easy either has never been married or they're lying, or they wanna look good, or they're totally deluded and you should ask their spouse. <laughs> a man was generally thought to have achieved the highly sought after and esteemed status of righteous, tzaddik in Hebrew, or good in the matter of divorce if when he sent away his wife, he provided for her a written declaration of their divorce. She at least then had a way to prove her status. 
allowed her to defend herself against charges of adultery, which you remember in John's gospel, could end up with her being killed, stoned, not just cast out, but obliterated. It also made it possible for her to seek another marriage and often sort of led to that because she had no other way or means in that culture, that society to provide and to protect herself. And so, as I said earlier, the last alternative is to live as a prostitute. It's hard, uh, it's hard to talk about this because there has been so much divorce. In my own family, in my own life, not me, but in my in the church, among us, with us. And it comes across, I hope it doesn't, but it probably does, as Jesus wagging his finger at people who have a scarlet letter, outwardly or inwardly. Dale Bruner writes, another problem with teaching the text on divorce is that the divorced and remarried are so visible, the sins of the rest of us are more, inconvenient, are more conveniently invisible. We're not always sure who are the impious, the bitter, the voyeurs, the liars, the revengeful, the haters, the vainglorious, proud, he writes, the careerists or money grubbers, the inauthentic. We cover our sins rather effectively, Bruner writes. Is divorce or are divorce and remarriage more deeply sinful than our anger and revenge that Jesus condemns in his surrounding commands in the Sermon on the Mount? Are divorce and remarriage the unforgivable sins? No, absolutely not. But don't we sometimes give the impression in the church that we think they are? Maybe so. And so we need to deal with the matter of divorce that Jesus speaks directly on multiple times and in clear terms, tenderly and carefully. I think we can acknowledge that some of the results of divorce are poverty or diminished resources immediately for those. They're the breaking and the fracturing, not just of a marriage, but of a household. They present challenges for children and for parents and grandparents, for neighbors, for friends, in many cases. And then there's another side of marriage and divorce. Sometimes marriage and divorce, divorce seems almost inevitable because of the depth of fracture, because of the pain, because of the suffering, because of the abuse, because of the infidelity, because of the lack of repentance on the part of one person or another. At the same time, far too often, divorce is probably the easy out for many people. And that's harder for me to say than it is for you to hear. The statistics are that about 40% of first marriages fail, about 60% of second marriages, about 73% of third marriages. I would imagine that most people get divorced, think it's the other person's problem, which is the reason for the divorce. Which if you look at the big picture kind of means it's everyone's problem, isn't it? because the other person feels, thinks, has experienced the same thing, that it's her fault, that it's his fault. The uniting of two broken people 
is always a difficult thing. One commentator writes, while Jesus' words here point to God's ultimate will for men and women, there are numerous instances in which a marriage is no longer real. Whether because of infidelity or neglect or abuse or failure to communicate or simply unresolved tensions regarding reciprocal expectations. While every effort should be made to redeem fractured marriages, some must be acknowledged as beyond repair. In such cases, divorce may not only be the lesser of two evils from the point of view of God's ultimate will, but also a positive step. One commentator writes, Jesus stated ideal for marriage is crystal clear. What we do with that from this point forward going in each of our lives is a unique, unique to each one of us journey. Every one of us is in a different place. Every one of us has different experiences. Every one of us has different kinds of relationships right now. We should be careful to talk about other people's positions, places, experiences, conditions, and focus only on our own. Without casting stones, Jesus said, yes. And so we all have a reason to come before God in confession, not just those who may have experienced divorce. And the gospel also heals. Many of you know the story of my family. My parents got divorced when I was eight. That was a destructive thing. Not just for my mom and dad, but all around. But it was necessary in some ways. And eight years later, my mom married a man whose wife had died of cancer. And he was like Boaz in her life, redeeming all of the hurt and pain and suffering. And they were married for 40 years, the last 10 of which she cared for him tenderly. And there hasn't been a prettier gospel marriage I've ever seen. The gospel has the power to make people who are hard-hearted and self-centered into a different kind of people when the kingdom of God comes upon them. And that has got to be part of the message here, that even though Jesus draws hard lines that there's room for grace and there's room for mercy. And wherever we are, wherever you're at, today is a new day. And God calls us not to look back other than to express repentance and remorse, but to look forward in obedience and joy and hope and confidence. That he is leading us into a new way of being, to a new way of thinking and making people who find it difficult to love their spouse into a new kind of people who love those at, instead of murdering them, instead of being angry, instead of using people.
God is at work transforming people's lives and bringing us under the realm and dominion of his kingdom. That is what he intends to do. That is what he does with and for people who make themselves available to him. And so repent, all of us, change and be changed because the kingdom of God has come near because the king has come near. Know that there is hope for our future regardless of our past. Live in God's grace. Obey his word and teaching and in all ways cling to the king. Let's pray. We don't know other people's stories, God, as well as we know our own. Forgive our supposed righteousness and our pride in that and our unrighteousness. Help us to change, to be changed, to be transformed, not just outwardly, but inwardly from the heart. Bring about your kingdom and your reign, not just in the church and not just in our communities, but in our lives, in our relationships, in all of our relationships. Restore and heal and reconcile. as you have reconciled us to yourself in and through Jesus. Do, help us, do for us and in us what we can't do for ourselves by the power and the indwelling of your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.